we know that it is an ongoing and slow process. One that cannot, and uh, if it is genuine, it doesn't stop. But transformation carries with it another unique quality. It is orchestrated through a divine plan that gets to the heart and to the guts of the person. And once the heart and the guts begin to reflect change, then the outward person will begin to reflect change. Theology, the study of God and all its disciplines, orchestrated and seasoned by the Holy Spirit's work in us, brings this transformation. A steady diet of God's Word and its assimilation and application in our hearts condition us and sustains us in this life. And it is the only thing that will. As a believer, persevering, and we have heard this over and again through the course of reading Hebrews and listening to the preacher, a believer persevering and bearing up under the hardship and the challenges of this life is no light task. The author of Hebrews chose his analogy well. As the Holy Spirit speaking through him, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You hear it? A long race, a marathon, all the way to the end. He pointed to the facts that it is hard, it is long, and it is one that requires the stripping of every encumbrance if we are to see through to the finish. And the life of transformation is in fact this work in our hearts and in our guts that brings about the change of this stripping of all of this stuff that encumbers us and is bothersome and problematic and challenging as we are looking to make it to the end. I was reminded of this again this morning as we came to our part of confession. Most of us would say, this has been kind of unique for me at Oak Valley because we are always dealing with this part of confession and assurance of pardon. And I see it week after week. You know why? Because there is a need for us to shed all of these encumbrances. How does that shedding take place? Well, God directs our hearts to think about our sinfulness. Otherwise, we think about how good we are. And in thinking about our sinfulness and looking to the glory of God and seeing ourselves over against Him, then we began to realize, I do want to long only for Him. That's what I want. And then began by the work of the Holy Spirit in us through God's Word in this constant attention of learning about who God is and what that means for us. 
we shed these encumbrances. You see, this was the intent of the pastor who wrote Hebrews. To see the church flourish and persevere for the glory of God. And this has been our intent. In these 27 weeks, there have been significant developments developments in our own government and in churches and denominations, our very own denomination, that clearly point to a continuation of change in respect to worldview issues that impacts our lives. And it's going to impact history and even how believers who hold to a biblical worldview will be perceived and treated in the days ahead. The church is divided on moral issues like abortion, on social issues like race, on theological issues as what is the gospel, and on the solution to these problems. What does this have to do with the message of Hebrews? Well, persecution, imprisonment, the confiscation of property, torture, banishment from families and communities and social gatherings were all being realized because of a stated and lived out faith in Christ. Because the church was saying and their lives were demonstrating that they believed that Christ alone was the answer to all of their issues and all of the world's problems and that there was no hope and there would be no redemption apart from Christ. And these will likely be the responses that you as believers will face unless there is some unforeseen change apart from the return of Christ. I hope you sense that there is a very real urgency here as we give attention to Hebrews and who Christ is and what that means and what it will mean for us as a church and us as individuals who profess Christ as we stand in the face of this world that is changing and is constantly changing but is not changing for the good toward God, but is becoming even more resistant. You probably heard that this morning when we looked at the 94th Psalm. It, <laughs> you could take our newspaper on any given day. You could cut out the last two or three years with the things that we have experienced and look at the 94th Psalm and look at the attitude of those who are against God and see over and over again and we, as a body of believers, are looking for justice in the course of this, but justice is only found in God. Justice is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Redemption is only found in Him. These are very personal and intimate things. They were for that church and pastor, and they are for this church and her pastors. With that, we just want to close our time together in Hebrews by considering these last few verses. Wow, let's begin uh, by seeing what's happening. The loving, caring pastor has written, we've already said, a short sermon 
One that he describes as an exhortation. And it comes in the way of a letter. And in closing the letter, he reminds them of the special relationship they have. Part of today will be a reminder for us of the special relationship that we have with one another. The relationship you have with your pastors and the relationship that your pastors have with you, but the relationship that we have with each other in the body of Christ as brothers and sisters traveling along in life together by the providence of God to make it to the end together. To make it to the end together. He's burdened for them and their well-being. And he entrusts himself to them. But he begins first by talking about who Christ is. Real quick litany of what we have heard already in Hebrews about Christ. You may want to jot these verses down. In fact, I'm going to take these. I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to go to Hebrews and my copy of Scripture, and I am going to write these verses down and running so that anytime I want to go to somebody and share with them about who Christ is, I can just go right down through Hebrews, and here's all the things that He has done. There is probably no better There's probably no better New Testament book to share the gospel, to use to share the gospel with someone than the book of Hebrews. In chapter 1 and verse 2, we read in the opening verses that Christ is the final word of God in these last days. We are in the last days. He is the final word of God in the last days. Meaning what? that there's going to be no other word from God that is, even, that is even intended to communicate what God communicated in Christ Jesus. In chapter 1, verses 6 and 10, we're told that Christ is the creator of the heavens and the earth and that angels worship Him. We read that just a moment ago in our confession from 1 Peter. In chapter 2 and verse 10, Christ is the pioneer of our salvation. And He has made us perfect and He perfected salvation in His own suffering. We saw that just a moment ago again uh, in 1 Peter. In chapter 2 in verse 14, He became flesh that He might die in our place and free us from the fear of death. That's huge when you're facing persecution because what is our greatest fear? Is dying. And in the face of persecution, what would one expect? Torture and death, which was what was coming. And yet we find uh, that he frees us from this fear. In chapter 3 and verse 5 and, and in those next verses, Christ is superior to Moses as a son is superior to a servant. In chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, he is a high priest. In fact, he is a sympathetic high priest who opens the way to the throne of grace. We are able to come before the throne of God because He is our high priest and intercedes for us. In chapter 7 and verse 25, He saves for all of time those who draw near to Him. Saves for all of time those who draw near to God through Him. In chapter 8, verses 10 and 12, he is the mediator of a new 
blood-bought covenant to secure that our sins will be forgiven and that the law will be written on our hearts and that God will be our God. I want you to hear that again. He is the mediator of this new covenant. A covenant struck and written with His blood that, that gives us the assurance that God's law is written on our heart. In other words, that, that God has imputed Christ's righteousness on us and writes His law on our hearts. In chapter 9 and verse 14, Christ is the one who by His blood purifies our consciences and our dead works to serve the living God. In other words, He moves us to a place that we long to serve Him. And we are not working to get God. And we are not working to get to God. But we are working and serving out of a deep love and devotion for God. That's what makes the work of the church so wonderful. That's why when we are looking ahead to our open house, I am longing for that having the opportunity to meet people that we will serve in the days ahead, not out of obligation, not out of duty, but because we long to serve God and we serve God in serving others and in sharing the gospel with those who need to hear about Christ. Chapter 9 and verse 26, He is the one who put an end to all sacrifices. There are no more sacrifices. None needed. None needed. We'll talk some more about that in just a little bit. In chapter 12 and verse 2, and He is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God until His enemies are made a footstool. In chapter 13 and verse 12, we... Saw that just a moment ago in our assurance of pardon. Christ is the one who suffered outside of the gate that he might sanctify people by his own blood. And then in chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, he is the one who will never leave us or forsake us, but will help us forever. Why? Because he can. His life is indestructible. And you know what that means? The believer's life is indestructible. Do you get a sense of that? His life is indestructible. Therefore, your life, if you've trusted in Him, is indestructible. Now, how is all of this and what He has had to say, coming down to the end of this letter, how is it significant to the church and what we just read from the text? Well, let's look in verse 18. First, the preacher makes a request for prayer. Now, here's what struck me when I read this. There is a personal tone to this sermon, but as I said, until you get to chapter 13, you could cut that off and that would be the end of the sermon. And even the first part then we would see as Adam drew our attention to it was clear application for all of this. 
But it is here in these last few verses that, that we hear this, this, this intimacy that rests between this pastor and his church. His life is bound up in their lives. Now I want you to hear this. And, and this is pastoral in nature, and I may get emotional. My life is bound up in your life. Our lives are bound up together. And this is no light matter. You know, Paul even spoke of his own joy being tied up and bound up in the spiritual well-being of those he loved and he served. Well, listen to what he had to say to the church at Corinth in chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He said, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one to whom I have pain? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. In 2 Corinthians, that same letter in chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, he says, Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. And we've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. He wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1, to, 1 and 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. In other words, I'm concerned about your spiritual well-being. We are bound up together in such a way that the thing that I care most about is your spiritual well-being. So he said, be like Christ so that my joy will be complete. He wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.4. He says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. He wrote to Philemon, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. The author of Hebrews says, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience. Desiring to act honorably in all things. And he says, and I urge you to earnestly do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. 
We don't know what the circumstances are around that. We don't know why he was somewhere else. We don't know what was going on in his life. What we know is, is that his life was bound up in their lives so much so that he came before them and said, I long to be back with you. Pray for me. Our lives are bound up together. We need you, Adam and Booney and I, we need you to earnestly and regularly pray for us as we seek to honor God in all things and to do so with a clear conscience. Today, at the close of our service this morning, you notice we had skipped, if you were following our order of service, uh, our intercession. At the end, we're going to pray for some sister churches and their pastors like we normally do. But I want us to understand the significance of what it is to pray for one another. But I want you to understand the significance of praying for your pastors. We need that. Our lives are bound up together. I hope you sense that. There is a relationship that we have together that is like no other relationship. Please pray. But notice the second thing that is significant is that he then in turn prays for the church. This is a benediction, it's a blessing, but more than that, it is a moment of intercession and praying for the church. Listen to what he prays. He says, now may the God of peace, in other words, he's calling out to God, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. In reading this, I was reminded of the instruction that the author gave earlier that we dealt with in chapter 10. He said, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There is on the author's part a commitment to pray for the things that the people were to seek and we're working to see come about in each other's lives as they encouraged each other. He understood this about them. And here's what he understood. is while they were morally responsible to persevere and remain faithful to the end, he understood they lacked the power to carry it all out. Did you get that while ago whenever Booney directed us to verse 2 of I will glory in my Redeemer? 
I, I can't remember exactly how he said it, but I was reminded when every time we sing that song, he makes that comment, and, and, and that is a good comment. I'm not saying, I, I want you to continue to make it, because it is a hard thing for us to sing as if somehow we are declaring that Christ alone has all of our affections. But I think you said a while ago that we want that to be what is forefront in our minds. But by virtue of the fact that we struggle in saying that this is true about me in every case reminds us of what? That we have the moral responsibility for that to be true, but we don't have the power by ourselves to do it. We don't have the power to carry it out. And the pastor knew this. He has all along the way said, persevere, persevere. But then he's also told the church, encourage each other, help each other, meet together. And now he is praying for them for the very things that he knows that they need that only God can provide. It's just, I'm just, I'm just taken away by this prayer. He knows that it's their responsibility, but he knows they lack the power to carry it out. He knew that they must have the presence and power of God to continue to the end. So he intercedes. And here's what he does in this intercession. These are the things that he points to, and you may want to jot these down. They come straight from Scripture, but they have implications far more than we will even give consideration to this morning. But notice where he begins. He appeals to God who is peace. He appeals to God who is peace because their lives, if considered only through the lens of their immediate circumstances, was less than peaceful. Listen, if I gauged my life this past week by my circumstances, I will tell you right now, I would have and find no peace at all. Just this past week, if I only looked at it through the lens of the circumstances, the world in which the, the, the people that he, this pastor was writing to, it lacked peace. Our world lacks peace. Our immediate world lacks peace. By appealing to the God of peace, he was reminding them of this. God is settled. Your circumstances are not peaceful. Your life may not be peaceful. Your mind and your heart at the moment may not be peaceful. The world you live in is not peaceful. The home you live in may not be peaceful, but God is settled. God is settled. And not only that, but because God is settled, rest in His settled state. And in that, you will then find peace. My life this past week has been an up and down roller coaster between being peaceful and unpeaceful. You know when I experienced peace? It's when I stopped and I rested in God. You know when my life was most unpeaceful? 
is when I was dealing with things in my flesh. Is that true of you? You say, well, that's no big thing. Our lives are just always messy. Oh, no, that is a big thing. That is a big thing. You know, Scripture teaches us that he who is faithful in the little things will also be what? Faithful in the bigger things. Listen, when my life, in the simplicity of it, in the day-to-day carryings out of just activities that have to be te- and responsibilities, when that becomes burdensome and worrisome and unsettling to me, can you imagine how something larger would become unsettling? But he appeals to the God of peace, the one who is settled in everything. And why is he settled? Because there is nothing at all that has taken God by surprise. God is not in heaven wringing his hands. He's not wondering what the world is going to do next. We've been looking at worldview issues in our Connect group. In this past week, uh, we dealt with the, the, the uh, we've talked about the eternality of God and the sovereignty of God over all things. And we have even looked this past week in giving consideration that everything in the way of time, God has known and has planned and His purposes and His promises will be carried out. What is taking place in the course of your life right now and in the life of the world, but in your life right now is part of the plan and purpose of God in all of redemptive history. Whether you're the age of Phoenix or whether you're the age of Tom. And Tom, I'm not singling you out, but I'm just talking about from from one end of the spectrum to the other. Everything that is taking place is a part of the plan and providence of God. He is settled in it. Why not rest in Him? And that's what the author of Hebrews is pointing us to. Rest in God. Appealing to the God of peace. He points to the resurrected Christ. Notice what he said. Now there may God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. The resurrection of Christ shouts over and over again the victory that we have in Christ. That even in death all that would be against us is rendered powerless Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. Because the Spirit of God, as he said in Romans chapter 8, that raised Christ from the dead, dwells in you and gives life to your mortal body. And the resurrection of Christ ensures that we will take on immortality when death does come. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. 
He reminds us that we have a great shepherd who guides us and leads us. What does he say? He says, the great shepherd of the sheep. In John chapter 10, we hear these words. We sang about this earlier too, by the way. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Number four, he directs us to the fact that we are sealed and bound in an eternal covenant. Look at what he says. The great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. I want you to think about this for just a moment. And this is, this is where things are a little different were different for these, this first audience. This first audience had some of them in the point of their lives, but all of them at some point had seen, recognized, lived under, and placed their hope in a previous covenant. But in Christ's coming and in His death had done away with that covenant and now a new and eternal covenant was established. What I want us to get from this is that there's not something else coming. That eternal covenant that was struck and sealed by the blood of Christ is for eternity and if you are in it and you are bound up in that covenant by your faith and your trust in Christ there is not going to be a change every promise associated with that covenant is going to be fulfilled there is not going to be another way to God There will not be another way to God. If you think for a moment that God is not involved in this world, look at the death of Christ. God is very much involved in this world. He is very much laid stake and claim to His creation because He sent His Son and His Son gave His life and shed His blood and took on our sin to bring about God's redemptive work. And listen, all we know about God from page 1 in Genesis to the last page of Revelation is this, is that there is no other work than the redemptive work of God. Do you get a sense of that? That is His work. That's what He has revealed to us. That's all we know about Him. And in the very center of that, sealing all of that from Adam's sin 
to the last one who will trust Christ is Christ's atoning work and His blood that was shed to seal this eternal covenant. Five. It reminds us that we need things and God provides those things. Notice what He says in verse 21. Equip you with everything good that you may do His will. In other words, all of that was to remind us that this God who has done all of this, He is, he is interceding, praying that this God who has done all of this will equip you. He was talking to the Equip that church with every good thing that they may do God's will. That's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for me. Why do I pray that? Because what I need and what you need, apart from God, we don't have. We need to be equipped. That word equipped is used in various ways throughout the New Testament, but it is often used to communicate something that needed to be mended or repaired. Matthew used it uh, to speak of the fishermen mending their nets. Paul used it in Galatians 6.1 to talk about restoring a brother. In other words, in the midst of this church, and in the midst of this church, we need to constantly be mending and building each other up and preparing each other to make it to the end. I, I, I grew up in a fishing community. Uh, married into a, a, a fishing family. Uh, helped out and done and worked. And I, I, can, I can remember, I, I, I remember pulling the seine up on the beach. I'm talking about 800 yards of net. Pulling it up on the beach. And then taking the needles and going out and mending the nets, preparing again to do the work. I recall pulling the spot net in and hanging something and tearing a hole in the net and bringing it back and pulling up in the boat and take the needle out and begin to sew it and to mend it, to prepare it to do what? To do the work that the net does. To be about what we were to be about. That's what he has in mind. We need these things. We need to be equipped and prepared. Mended up. Shored up. Strengthened and helped. And God is the one who provides that. Why? Because that is what pleases Him. His work for His glory. And then finally, look in verse 25. Grace be with all of you. We have an endless supply of grace. One of the reasons, and I'm doing this because I want you to sense this, almost at... I don't think probably more than two or three times that we have not had a, 
a benediction at the end of our services. You know what I'm talking about? Where, and most of the time it's been Adam or Booney. Generally it's Booney because he's leading in the music. I've done it a time or two when I've closed out at the end of the service. But at the end of that, there is a benediction. There is a blessing and almost always, and that's important. I, I hope you sense the significance of that blessing because we are being sent out. And most often, that benediction or blessing will include grace be with all of you. Now, we aren't, we aren't giving the grace because we have no way of giving that grace. What we are doing, we are stating what is needed that only God can give and it is an eternal supply of grace on you until we meet here again. Why? Because it is the grace of God that sustains us. Those are not just nice words. That is not just a nice piece of liturgy. That is the reality of what we need as the body of Christ to persevere to the end. Is we need the grace of God. And we are reminded here that there is an eternal supply of God's grace on those who believe to do what? To make it to the end. We are connected together and bound up together in unspeakable ways. And here's what that means for us, just in closing. It means that, and I'm going to speak for Adam and Booney as well. It means that we love you and we care about your spiritual well-being. We care about your spiritual well-being. We want you whole. We want you well spiritually. We can pray for you when we're sick. But beyond that, that's about all we would be able to do. And not that that's not enough. But I tell you what we can do for you spiritually by the grace of God. We can talk with you about your life. We can point you to Scripture. We can see you when you're down and encourage you. We can see when you are up and maybe becoming prideful. We can seek to exhort and encourage. We can be faithful and with clear consciences preach and teach to the end that you continue to experience that transformation by the Spirit of God, the faithful preaching and teaching of His Word. We can walk alongside of you in suffering. We can celebrate with you in joy. Because if you are well... 
we're going to be okay. But it doesn't end there. Our relationship goes beyond that because we are connected together in such a way by the blood of Christ and because of the covenant that we have entered into as a church family that those same kind of richness in relationship should be together where each of you should care about the other. And I believe you do, and we're growing in that so that we can help each other make it to the end. I want to get there with you. I want you to get there with me. And I want us to get there with others who don't know Christ yet. That is the mission of Oak Valley Church. I want us to end our, this time together here before we come to the table. I want us to, I want us to pray. I, I want you to pray for Adam and Booney and me. And I'm going to be praying for you and I'm going to be praying for them because they're my pastors. But we have three sister churches that I want us to pray for today. And you may want to jot these names down and the request. When we pray for our sister churches, we reach out to the pastors. And we ask them, how we're going to pray for you. We said, we're praying for you today. Tell us how we can pray for you. I contacted Jay Knowles, pastor of Grace Baptist Church. Love that ministry and love Jay. I uh, said, Jay, how can we pray for you? Uh, he said, Jimmy, he said, if you will pray for us as we continue uh, to strive to reach children for Christ through the ministry of Wilmington Christian Academy. So Jay said, pray for me in that. Pray for us as a church in that. So um, that's Jay's request. Reached out to Phil. I said, Phil, how can we pray for Scott's Hill today? And how can we pray for you? He said, Jimmy, he said, pray that I will remain faithful in preaching the gospel. And he said, pray for our elders as we seek to look ahead in what direction God would have for us as a church. Okay, so I, I, I lay that before you. And then I reached out to Joey Kennedy. Uh, Hampstead Baptist Church. I said, Joey, how can we pray for you? Uh, Joey said, Jimmy, we're still struggling with issues as it relates to COVID. And their ministry is being, to some degree, ministry as we had talked about it in the same kind of struggle. We feel like we need to be doing that, but we're doing this. But he said, pray for us as we work through this. Now, how do we want to pray for them? Specifically about those things. But let's pray for them in the way that the pastor prayed for the church when he was writing to the Hebrews. Pray that the God of peace who raised Christ from the dead, the great shepherd who sealed us 
by the blood of this eternal covenant would equip them in every good thing that they may do the will of God to the end that His name be glorified because He deserves all of the glory. Join me as we pray. Father, we thank You that You are at work in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are meeting even now. Whose pastors are preaching Your Word. Whose leaders are seeking to get some sense of what You would have them do specifically. Father, we understand the significance of their work in community. We know, Father, that they are faced with struggles and challenges just like we are. They're dealing with sin in their own lives. We lift them up before You even now, God. And ask, Lord, that You would encourage Jay and Phil and Joey as they go to Your Word looking to what You would have them teach the people. Father, that You would continue to uh, cause your scripture to come alive in their own minds and their own hearts that there would be a growing passion in them to shepherd well and to lead well and that father that you would burden their hearts heavily for their people but burden them in such a way that they rest and lay those burdens back on you because you're the great shepherd Father, we ask, Lord, that you would help Phil as he seeks to be faithful in preaching the gospel. That you would use him to proclaim the word to those who are there and here week after week. And God, that you would bring about transformation in their lives. That you would give their elders wisdom uh, as they seek direction for the church in the days and the years to come. Thank you, Father, for the work that you have done through this church. Thank you, Father, for Jay and his leadership of Grace Baptist Church. And ask God that you would encourage him as he seeks to lead those who lead the ministries of the school. And Father, that you would, in fact, use the teachers and administration of the school and cause them to have a greater heart and a passion for being clear about the gospel and who Christ is and how the boys and girls can come to know Christ and live for Him. Father, encourage Joey during these days, Lord, as he seeks to shepherd his people and love on them well. And for those who are still struggling with COVID, Father, bring healing according to Your will. But would You strengthen the church through Your Word. And Father, for these churches and our sister churches in this area and for us here today, May you, the God of peace who raised Christ from the dead, a great shepherd who sealed for us an eternal covenant with His blood, equip us with every good thing that we need that we may bring honor and glory to you and accomplish your will. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.